from Orms, this is Orms Air, where we unpack and investigate the compelling questions at the forefront of our creative community's consciousness. Joined by the artists, photographers, and creators, brave enough to step up to the mic and join us in discussion. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Orms Air, the Orms podcast. We are so excited today to be joined by the incredible Melissa Delport. Thank you for joining us, Melissa. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, Melissa is an author, holistic health coach, food stylist, photographer, retreat facilitator, and in fact, a private chef as well. So we're gonna we're gonna talk to you about like all the things today. I'm I'm really stoked. Yeah, let's unpack it. Yeah. So I mean, okay, starting off with that, I mean, I just pulled those that string of titles from your Instagram bio, basically. But it's it's very clear as we've introduced that you are definitely a multifaceted, multi-talented creative. You've got this huge, like wide range of experience in many different creative disciplines. And I think the easiest way for us to kind of dive into your creative origin story would to be to kind of like unpack, you know, which one of these forms of creative expression kind of came to you first? And then how did the others kind of follow along from that? So I'd have to say, um, actually, none of them really? came first, which is the irony, right? Um, I actually first studied to be a makeup artist. Oh, wow. So I'm a qualified makeup artist. I straight out of school thought that's what I wanted to do with my life. And um was very passionate about it. So I studied makeup. And then a year into my studies, I just realized this wasn't enough and I wanted more creative expression. And that's when I studied photography. So I did a year of studies in f- uh, of the course at the time. Uh, I think it was the National School of Photography. They got sold to Vague a couple of years after okay. I finished. So I did a year of photography up in Joburg. And then shortly afterwards, I dropped out and halfway because I just felt... Once you teach me how to use a camera, you can't teach me much more. Yeah. Um, so I dropped out and I actually moved to Cape Town at the time. So um, I would say photography definitely came first. But I also was convinced that I was going to be in the fashion industry and shoot fashion. Mm. So my career kind of took a left turn into food um, after the f- third season of MasterChef South Africa. Mm-hmm. I entered and had my three seconds of fame, quite literally, and decided this is it. I need to photograph food. And that kind of started and started the journey and Mm. it's just been one of following my nose really you know go where it flows and go with what works Mm. and so then after my photography realized I wanted to shoot food started shooting food realized I needed a food stylist the whole time and I'm a very independent person I don't Mm. like relying on other people if I don't have to right so it frustrated me that I couldn't shoot without a food stylist yeah you know and that's when I was like oh okay I'm just gonna have to do this myself so I started styling my own shoots and mm-hmm. then that kind of evolved into at the time I started a blog it used to be called the truffle journal mm. and the blog did really well and it was at a time where Instagram was still new and quite a thing and yeah so I just started sharing my photography and then that kind of took off really well and then after you know, it was received so well. I thought, well, I come from this long line of serious home cooks. Mm. My mom was this, is an incredible cook, my grandmother, my aunt. And I just decided that I wanted a space to share my food expression. Mm. And then after the blog, I actually, and it's funny, you know, that we're doing the Orms podcast because 
during that time and the social media doing so well, I was approached by Orms to do an influencer campaign. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, you know, influencer. It's like Mufasa. I'm like, oh, I shudder when I hear it. Yeah. But I was asked to do a campaign with Orms and it was actually on the photo box. Yes. And I did, I thought, well, if I'm going to do a photo book, then maybe I should do recipes. Yeah. Maybe I should do a recipe book. So I was like, cool, let's do a recipe book. So it was quite funny. And at the time, obviously there was a print limit. So I did the print limit with Orms on um, the book and it was 10 recipes. And then afterwards I thought, maybe I should take this to a publisher and yeah. just, just see what happens, you know. And then I took it to Penguin Random House. And I said, oh, look, I've got a cookbook. And I'll never forget because I met with the publisher, my, my old publisher, she's retired since, but um, I met with her and I said, oh, look, I've got a cookbook, you know, um, Young, Wild and Free Ego. And she said, no, you've got the beginning of a chapter of a cookbook. Oh, wow. And I went, oh, okay, well, that went well. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, that was sort of the end of it. And I went away and carried on with life. And then about yeah, three months later, they called me and that's mm. when they had said that the publishing committee had actually taken a lot of shining to my pitch. And that's started my journey into being a cookbook author and yeah. really shooting and food styling on a, on a different level. Because mm -hmm. again, to produce a cookbook is huge. Yeah. The production behind it is, um, you know, you need, you need an army yeah. and armies cost. And if you're a creative that doesn't necessarily have that cash flow, that mm. nice influx, or want to spend it, the option is to do it all yourself. So I decided to do that. Wow. And, and that's how the books were born. And I, I wrote them, I styled them, I recipe developed them, I shot them, I retouched them, I designed them with a designer from Penguin. And yeah, they're really essentially my creative heart on my sleeve because... Mm. I needed a place to express it, right? Yes. So yeah, and then after that, I studied to be a holistic health coach mm. because the books are centered around whole food eating and nourishment and yes. moving away from to toxic diet culture. Mm. And um, yeah, so decided to make my mess my message and be a health coach um, and I studied. And then afterwards, the retreat space just opened up to me. Yes. And now I have the privilege of holding space for people um, through different retreats, be it yoga, sound, all of it's connected obviously with food. And yeah, I just I follow my nose as a creative. You know, what inspires me, what sets my soul on fire, and that's just where I'll go. It's just always been how, I, how I've been. That's so remarkable. I'm going to, and we're going to dive deep dive into the cookbook thing in a second, because I want to know all about this, but I'd love to backtrack and, and maybe just ask a bit about like the food styling aspect of everything mm. and kind of how, so you came in with like the, the photographic sort of experience realized as this independent creator, you want to like style the food yourself, mm. essentially. How did you go about like teaching yourself that? Is it just like a lot of practice? Did you do any courses, any resources that you drew on? So I would say, you know, I, I had the blessing, I have the blessing of having a good eye. Mm. And I think that unfortunately, but also fortunately, not everybody is gifted with a good eye. Yeah. I do think that you can train your eye. And coming from my fashion background, the irony is a lot of the stuff that I learned in fashion, assisting the photographers that I assisted at the time, mm. um, learning the retouch that I did at the time, is all tools that I still implement now in my food photography. Oh, yes. So at the time, you know, uh, one of the retouches that I'd, assisted said to me pick up a vogue you know when print was still very cool mm. and you page through a vogue and you go through every single face every single shot and you just look for retouch faults mm. and you look for retouch faults and you start to train your eye for what's good what's not good what works what doesn't work and that's yes. how you build right yes. so when i moved over into food 
I would do the same. I would pick up our local food magazines, again, when print was still alive and well. Mm. Um, and I'd go through the magazines and I'd just go, what is, what is looking amazing? And when it comes down to food, for me, it's got to be delicious, right? Yeah. If you're not looking at it going, I want to eat that right now. now. Just like, get, in my get belly. that in my belly yes. right now. <laughs> like if that's not what it's doing, then for me, it's a fail. Yes. It's, and, and it's that black and white. So in the beginning, it was very much about stimulating my creative brain. And that's mm. looking at everybody else's work. Yeah. And constantly growing your eye in that sense. What's a good composition? What's not a good composition? What's good coloring? What's good lighting? Mm. What's, you know, like good colors to combine in a shot? Like what's beautiful texture? And just, so mm. I did a lot of that. Um, a lot of Pinterest. Oh. At the time, Pinterest was also, it had just arrived and it was like a huge thing, you know? So hours and hours and still I do mm. spend a lot of time on Pinterest just looking and just visually stimulating that creativity right mm. so in the beginning it was that um, a lot of different tutorials online I mean you can teach yourself anything yes. it wasn't studied nothing yeah. like I said I did a year of photography and that was it because the reality is is your creativity is like a muscle mm -hmm. and the more you exercise it the stronger it's going to get and that's that's what I realized quite early on so I would just set up my camera and just shoot, just shoot all the time and take different photos and different angles, different compositions, buy a tomato, slice a tomato, cut it in half, cut it the wrong way, stand it on its head, stand it upside down, shoot it mm. from the top, shoot it from the side, you know, shoot it with a side shadow, shoot it, you know, with different lighting. Mm -hmm. And that developed my eye because I was trying to create what I saw as great photography yeah. at the time. So it's definitely a self-taught skill of, of practice. Mm. I absolutely love what you're saying about the, the two sort of sides, right? The critical analysis of something that is good or that is bad and trying to break down it into its elements of like what works and what doesn't. Mm. It's something that um, I teach uh, post-production for video at the school, OMSA school. And it's something that I encourage my students to do in terms of editing is we'll actually like sit with a trailer and then we'll break it down. Like, why does this work? Why did they use yeah. this technique? Where doesn't it? work and then you take those learnings and then you try and apply it into your in a creativity sense yeah it is exactly the way to teach yourself to do something so i love i love this insight it's so great yeah i mean let's definitely dive more into the the photography side and i know that uh, this kind of from your your website right is that you in like a professional sense you're definitely creating obviously in that food space i see interior work on there mm. some portrait stuff as well for each of these like three the three main disciplines that you kind of practice what would you say is the most exciting part of creating one of these images food interior portraits and then what would you say is the most technically challenging part of I, each of those. I think I think they're one and the same. Really? The creativity and the, uh, the the excitement and the challenge is the same thing. Because yes. being able, you know, every time you shoot, it's different. Mm. The lighting is different. The person is different. The food is different. The day is different. You're different every single time you pick up a camera. And that's what I love about it. And I think that's what I've always loved about it is that no matter what you're doing, you're going to be pushing yourself for growth mm. in that moment, right? And that's the excitement, but that's also the challenge. Yes. So you get to a space and it's low lighting, it's, you know, radical shapes in terms of interior design aspects that you've got to capture all in one and give them all their space to breathe within the composition. Mm. That's the challenge, but that's the excitement. So it's yeah. maybe it's maybe it's a bit of maybe I'm having a realization that I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. <laughs> like the, the rush is the great part, right? Like yes. you get there and you have no idea what you're doing, but you have all the idea what you're doing. So you do it and you just hope that it works out and, yeah. and it does. 
And that's the the exciting part. So the challenge is what's actually exciting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so we, we did talk a little bit about this now with the food photography thing where like the whole point is to look at the image and be like, oh my God, delicious, need to, must eat it now, right? But what, in your expert opinion, what would you say are some of like the key visual ingredients that would create a mouth-watering food image? So firstly, mouth-watering food. Mm. Always. 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 It's got a, you know, I, I've actually worked with several food stylists, incredible food stylists in the industry here in Cape Town, whom I highly respect. And the one day she tasted my food on set and she went, oh, you actually make your food taste good. Oh my gosh. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that I'm convinced thing? that you can see the flavor through through the camera, you know. Yeah. And she was quite surprised. No, it's not, a th it, 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 it's quite common to actually render the food uh, uh, inedible with different techniques like glycerine or whatever mm. it is that you add onto the food. Mm. I personally don't because food waste is my number one thing that I cannot deal with. So yes. all the food that comes off set with me is 100% edible. I'll, I'll donate it and give it to a lucky neighbor or whatever it is. Mm. And then also I think in that space of, you know, firstly the food has to be delicious. It has to look incredible. Mm -hmm. Then it's lighting. Mm. photography means to capture the light yes and if you're not capturing beautiful light you're wasting your time it doesn't mm -hmm. matter how delicious the food looks it doesn't matter how good you are in post-production if the f lighting is not incredible it's done so for me it would be delicious food delicious lighting mm. and then i'm a texture girl i'm mm. all about the texture like the texture of the surface the texture of the food the texture on the plate the texture of the salt that you crack next to it like the minute it becomes that visual stimulation everywhere where there's these these pops of color and moments within a shot mm. it makes it absolutely incredible to look at mm. it can't just be well it could be but it's not gonna be a great shot just a pizza on a plate yeah you know it's it's the it's the creative moments within that mm. that image mm. when you combine color and texture and good lighting and good food mm. yeah and a little bit of skill i think that <laughs> <laughs> you'll get a good shot <laughs> yeah i'm already i'm picturing it in my head right now as you're describing it but yeah i think there definitely there needs to be like this tactile element you must almost be able to like feel that moment right exactly yeah. exactly and 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 you know when it comes to food remember that everyone loves eating this is true. And I mean, there's a, there might be some women out there and we unpack that on the health coaching side of things that mm. battle with their relationship with food. But I yeah. think for the better part, you know, everybody loves food mm. and everybody loves eating and food brings people together in such a glorious way. And mm. it's what, what gives us life. Yes. If you don't eat, you'll die. Yeah. It's that simple. So when you get to celebrate it in, in a creative form and really evoke emotion out of it it's mm. actually so powerful food photography in many many ways it truly truly is it's one of my favorite things i buy cookbooks just to look at the pictures me too <laughs> i have my whole life <laughs> yeah always do i'm just thinking about the whole section on my bookshelf right now that's just full of like jamie oliver books and Wesker's wonder and like all of these other ones are just now i want to go home and look at a cookbook basically <laughs> exactly exactly um you touched on beautiful lighting can mm. we dig into that a little bit more like, we can, but everybody's about to get a very big surprise if they see how I light things. Oh, I want to know, though. <laughs> okay, so, like, yeah, what, what in your mind, uh, your opinion, like, quantifies, like, beautiful lighting? And are there, like, techniques that you use to kind of achieve that, generally speaking? So, for me, my favorite lighting, and, and look, again, there's so many ways to swing a cat, I think, when it comes to creativity. I mean, the way I retouch something... To get to an end goal, you might get to the same end goal, but retouch it completely differently. Yeah. So it's the same with lighting. Personally, 
I don't use any artificial light at all mm. whatsoever. Mm. I don't think it makes lo- food look stimulating and delicious. I think it it just offsets the color because it will never be natural. And food mm. for me, at least my food photography is about the natural food yes. and about how good that food really is. Yeah. So if you are making the food uh, unnatural in its lighting, then it doesn't look as good, personally. Yeah. That being said, you know, you can always scrim it, pop it with a little bit of a flash on the side, using an HMI light, like there's options. But for me, it's 100% natural lighting. That's incredible. Yeah. I and that. controlling natural light, that's the that's the challenge, right? Is seeing mm. the source mm. and how do we manipulate the source for a beautiful outcome within that shot. So, you know, again, it is a challenge when it comes to, you know, if you're shooting food, that's more in the product sense because every 20 minutes the sun is different. Yes. So there's a challenge in that. But um, for the better part, soft, beautiful, diffused, natural sunlight controlled with a couple of beautiful uh, uh, boards, you know, maybe scrimmed, maybe pop a little light into the shadows. You don't need anything more. Yeah. Oh, this is this makes me very excited as someone who like exclusively shoots with natural light. I'm like, yeah, yeah. this is the way to go. I shot both my cookbooks on my dining room floor. No. Yeah, in really? my house. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I know. This is incredible. My mind is blown. The secrets are out. <laughs> um, I mean, wrapping up that sort of section, do you have any advice for those who maybe want to break into any of these three sort of disciplines that we've kind of touched a little bit on, like the food maybe predominantly. So like food photography and then anything you could say towards like interior or portrait photography. I think for anybody that is um, doing photography and wanting to break into the industry, their respective industry, I think the rules are the same, right? Mm. I think when you're young, don't pigeonhole yourself. Mm. I decided when I was young that I am going to be in fashion and I Mm. left myself no other option. So for years, I struggled. And I mean, the struggle was real. I've carried generators up buildings in Cape Town. I've assisted some of the most incredible photographers and I worked my behind off, Mm. especially as a woman in the industry, assisting men. And it's not always easy, right? And we chose professions that involves very heavy gear. Um, And I just decided that was it. Like, I'm going to do fashion. Mm. That I left no room for anything else to grow. Yeah. You know, it's like I pigeonholed myself because I was like, that's what I want. So that's what it's going to be. And then all of a sudden, this whole other world blew open to me. And that's when I realized that don't pigeonhole yourself. Shoot everything. If you want to be a creative, be a creative. Yeah. That means be creative wherever you can. If it means you're painting in the afternoon or shooting the next day or one day you're doing a mixed art medium, the next day you're recording a cool podcast, whatever it is, express yourself. Yes. Don't pigeonhole yourself because I think when you pigeonhole yourself, you sell yourself short as a creative. Mm. So I'd say in the beginning, definitely not to to put too many expectations on yourself that you're going to be a certain way. Yeah. But also to remind yourself that you got to shoot, shoot, shoot and shoot every day. If you want to break into the industry, you have to, you have to be the best. Yeah. Because the people that are earning good money of just being a photographer, they are the best. Yeah. And they're at the top of their game and their clients love them and their clients are happy and they deliver every single time, no matter the lighting, the day, the mood, the client, the food, the portrait, the person, the model, mm. whatever it is, they're delivering. So in order to get to that place, you have to shoot every day. Yeah. And you have to practice your craft, you know, uh, um, what do they call them? Bodybuilders don't yes. just all of a sudden lift 500 kilograms or whatever silly amount they lift. Mm. They do so by building it up to get there. Mm-hmm. It's the same with a creative skill. We, you know, you can sort of have this expectation that I want to be in the industry and I want to be top of my game, 
but I don't practice every day. Yeah. And it's no different with creativity, I think, to being, you know, really good with numbers. It's mm. you've got to practice your skills. So in the beginning, my advice would definitely be don't pigeonhole yourself and shoot every day, mm. every single day and mm. assist if you can. Find a place to assist. And yeah, it's not going to be nice. It's going to be an ego knock. Because mm. when you're young, you have a big ego, right? Oh, yes. That's when you don't want to carry the things. And when you mm. definitely know better than everybody on set, but you don't. Yeah. You know, you got, I come from the old school as well with the um, assisting where you shut your mouth. You're at the back. You don't exist. Mm. You're here to carry things. And you're lucky if you learn. And mm. that's just what it is. So it's kind of like an earn it. It's a rite of passage as a creative, I think, um, in many ways is to to do that. And to assist as... It's a privilege because not everybody gets that opportunity either. Yeah. So if a photographer's chosen you to assist, like honor that and show up and mm. learn and be there in that space. So that would be my my sort of long-winded guidance in the beginning. That is, it's radical to be a creative, right? That's radical. It is so radical. It's radical. Um, it's, it is the best and also sometimes just the worst at yeah. the same time. It's tough because a lot of people, I think it's very difficult to not attach your inherent self-worth to your creative expression. Ooh, oh. the big, the big things coming out here. Yeah, <laughs> I, I relate to that yeah. statement on a fundamental level. Everybody, you know, most creatives do because our creativity is our heart on our sleeve. Yeah. It's an extension of me. The way that I produce my, my box or my food, it's, it's like, wow, well, this is my heart. This is my soul. This is my soul. Mm. So, you know, if you're not making monetary exchange on it in the beginning or necessarily being applauded the way that you would like, it's very difficult to separate that and be like, it has nothing to do with me. And my worth. And my worth and everything to do with the work and where I'm at in my life. Yeah. So also another, I suppose, guy for a young photographer out there is they're not the same thing Yo. and in the beginning for me it was very tough I went through the ringer on it where I was mm. like nobody wants to work with me my work's not good enough no, you know like yeah it's tough yeah because you, you you're so proud of your work and then mm. somebody looks at it and they're like yeah okay sure that's nice and you're like, oh, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. You just told me that yeah. my soul is just nice. Yeah. You know? you, you know, why don't you just reverse over me while I lie here and cringe in the corner? You know. <laughs> oh, oh my God. Yeah. This is this is me one hundred percent. Exactly. Um, Most, but all creatives do it, right? Yeah. We have to we have to separate the fact that we are worthy regardless of whether our creativity is received. Oh. And when we want to put money onto our creativity, which is obviously what we want to do as photographers or you know, any, any form of creativity where you're a singer or whatever it is, it's that, that we've, you know, just that check-in and that self-reminder is that they're not the same thing. Mm. And if you're not getting money for your creativity, it doesn't mean that your creativity is garbage. Yes. It just means that you're not getting money for your creativity, creativity. yet. Yes. Yet. Yes. And that's okay. Yeah. I love all of this so much. And I, I wanted to just briefly touch on a, a point that you made about not pigeonholing yourself, which is mm. actually so encouraging for me to hear as someone who is also like multidisciplinary. Like I write, I do podcasts, I do video, I do photos, I do all of it. And I've often felt this pressure. And I know from speaking to a lot of other people who do kind of explore a lot of genres of creative expression, they often feel pressure to like specialize mm. rather than be a generalist and just follow whatever they feel like and whatever inspires them. And to hear you say like, no, you know what you just, just do whatever like is fun and cool and makes you excited about creativity. And you're lucky that, if you can attach money to it. Yeah. You're one of the blessed, you know, I think that the reality is, and, I, and, and, and trust me, I count my blessings daily. The fact that my work gets received the way that it does, because mm. in the beginning it wasn't, Yeah, it was, it's very tough. And I think that in that space, 
we have to remind ourselves as creatives that it's a blessing to be able to earn money for my creativity. Absolutely. But I don't have to be creative in order to earn money. Oh. They're not, the, they're not mutually exclusive mm. again. You know, there's that. Sometimes I just sit and paint. Or sometimes I just mm. sit and guard and well, don't sit. I actively roll around in the sand. I love, <laughs> I love being on the outside. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a nature human. So, yeah. you know, sometimes I just garden and that mm. just stimulates my creativity, repotting, placing my plants differently in my house, mm. whatever it is. It's, I think that there's this element of our creativity attaching to our inner child, mm. which everybody has. And that nurturing, fun, supportive, caring beauty that comes with being creative mm. you know just to sit and just write and just express what you felt during your day is so empowering in so many oh, ways and so yes. beautiful the fact that you could maybe earn money for that wow that's a gift that's mm. a blessing but it doesn't mean that what you expressed that day is worthless yeah it's they're not the same thing and it's difficult you know especially mm. when you're young to like separate like what is what is going on here you know because mm. I think for many creatives, and, and, and I know this to be true for myself, is that it sets my soul on fire. Yeah. Nothing makes me happier than when I'm shooting, cooking, eating, connecting to food, be it on my retreats, mm. be it when I'm private chefing for somebody, when I'm shooting. And it's just that whole space. It literally, I don't feel like I'm working. Yeah. Which is incredible. And I know that that's a huge blessing because mm. to not feel like you're working when you are working is a gift not given to many. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's 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 a it's a difficult space to be in. But just to remind yourself that you can just be creative because you're creative. Mm. Like let yourself. And when you know, it's again those rules and that pigeonholing. Mm. If you pigeonhole yourself, you put like this box around you. Like step out of the box. Who cares about the box? Oh my like, gosh! I need a box. This is exactly what I needed to hear going into my weekend. I'm gonna bring out my air dry clay and make something just for the hell of I'm, it. I'm into it, and just do it for the sake of it. Because expressing that creativity, right, and being able to just be like, "Wow, there! I was just creative," mm. without the expectation that you needed to earn money on it. Yeah, it frees you. Yeah, because the money constraint can often bog us down like mm. oh am I going to make enough money or oh, my parents think that I'm not going to be nailing uh, you know this career and if I'm not nailing this career I'm not going to pay my bond I'm not going to pay my whatever it is mm. you know there's all these societal pressures and listen don't get me wrong you've got to pay your bond or you've got to pay your rent yeah. and show up for yourself financially as a human but there's so many ways to swing a cat yeah like you could in the beginning, I had a waitressing job when I moved to Cape Town. I yeah. used to work at a place called Haiku. I don't know if they're still around or Church Street. Mm. And I waitressed and I shot. And, I, you know, then I was a model booker at an agency for a hot minute because mm. I was like, that maybe, you know, gave me the financial stability. And that's why I think I've been forced into multifaceted areas of my creativity. Yeah. Because, you know, you need multiple revenues of income mm. in order to survive this world. Unless Absolutely. you want to go take a corporate job and get a salary. But... What do they say? The most addictive things in the world: heroin, a salary, and uh, complex carb and carbohydrates, refined carbohydrates. Oh, yes. So, <laughs> you know, in that space, if unless you're going to do that, like, be okay mm -hmm. with that ebb and flow with your creativity. Sometimes yes. I'm going to earn money from it. Sometimes I'm not. And if I'm not earning money from it through my photography, maybe through my styling. If not through my styling, maybe through my private chefing. Mm. Whatever it is. There's multiple revel revenues of income. And I think that's why I've set it up that way because mm. I learned very early on to put all the eggs in the basket of just photography, put so much pressure on what I love to do that I almost didn't love to do it anymore. That's such a valuable and insight. that would kill me. Yeah. No, that would be soul-destroying. 
No, I that is I mean, I don't know what else to say other than this is all incredible advice and and so many things that I wish someone had, had like told me when I like jumped into my me creative too, journey. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we are here to like tell you these things now, young creative people. Oh hey. It looks like we've reached that point in the episode where we ask you to share Orm's Air with your friends. But seriously, if you are enjoying our discussions and being creatively enriched by the insights of our guests, it would be straight up fantastic if you would consider telling your community about our little podcast. If you would like to make your voice heard in future conversations, all you need to do is get in touch with us via one of our communication platforms. We accept DMs, inbox messages, tweets, emails, and even notes sent by Carrier Pigeon. So, don't be shy. Send your most burning creative requests, questions, and wonderings to any of our social channels, linked in the show notes of this episode. Um, I said we were going to deep dive on the books. Let's do it. And I, I want to do I'm that. I'm here for it. Okay, so you've you've got your two big publications, which was Whole Bull Food for Balance, published in 2018, if I remember correctly. And then more recently, you had Heal Begin with Food. Yes. So for both of these, um, can you tell us a little bit about these books and then kind of what inspired and motivated their creation? You did touch on it a little bit earlier. Yeah, so got this is a long else. story. I hope everyone's listening. You get your cup of tea ready because we're, going, we're go. in for the deep dive. Cool. So um, Whole Bowl Food for Balance is my first book and it was actually started out of, we're going to put a pin in it and turn and indicate to the left. Mm. First time I was put on a fad diet, I was 11 years old through sure. no fault of my own, uh, my parents. They did the best that they knew with what they had. And um, my mom and dad at the time thought, you know, fat baby's happy baby. And then all of a sudden there was a panic about weight and I got put on to a fad diet and mm. that kind of set me up for the next 15 years of my life going I'm the wrong shape mm. I need to be a different shape which as a woman is something a lot of us carry yes so that was happening in my life I spent most of my 20s on diets I did uh, Atkins, Dukan, Banting, Shurslim, Wayless, Slender Wonder I did speed pills in my 20s I did the injections in my 20s all because I was chasing the goal of thin mm. because thin was what I needed to be thin was celebrated thin was healthy according to yeah. how my my, uh, my uh, head had received the information out there in the world yeah so i decided um so that was sort of happening in the background of the story you know you can kind of put it at the same time that i was studying makeup and then photography and then sort of walked that path and then what happened was when my career took this like random shot left after master shift I ended up in a world of food. Mm. So all of a sudden I ended up in a world where the thing that was being celebrated about me and people loved about me, which was my food photography and me being connected to food was actually in duality causing me a lot of pain. Mm. I was actually in a very dark space about it because I had food anxiety. I didn't know what I could eat, when I should eat. Should I cut the carb? Don't eat the carb. You ate too many other carbs. Why didn't you count that calorie? You should have counted less, more. You know, it was it was a nightmare internally mm. and a very painful place to be in. And then when I were just, uh, you know, after, I was about 28 years old, I just had this penny drop of thin and healthy aren't the same thing. Yeah. They're not the same thing. And it's obvious when I say it out loud, but unfortunately, so many women have internalized that they need to be thin. And when I realized that thin and healthy aren't the same thing, at the same time, I was also diagnosed when I was 17 with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Mm. It's a sy syndrome that affects one in eight women of childbearing age. And 
when I was diagnosed with PCOS, I thought, well, that's it. You know, they put me onto all the different medications that are needed for it, be it Roaccutan, glucophage for being pre-diabetic, mm. oral contraceptive, uh, artificial hormones. You know, for every problem that I had, there was a tablet. Yeah. So this all culminated at 28 where I realized I'm on a vast array of medications and I hate taking tablets every single day. I think it was diet trauma of swallowing all different pills in my 20s. Mm. Then I also had the duality of being anxious around food. But I also had the duality of everybody celebrating how good I was with food. Sure. So it was like a re it was like a storm in a teacup, right? Yeah. And then I just hit this break point where I was like, thin and healthy aren't the same thing. And if I endeavored to get healthy, what would happen? Yeah. So I tried. And I literally just went down the rabbit hole of hungering for every single bit of knowledge that I could find. And that's what that's how Hole was born. Mm. Hole was born out of moving away from toxic diet culture, realizing that I can eat whole, real, balanced food. Through doing so, I subsequently lost 25 kilograms. Sure. I put my PCOS completely into remission. I um, have never felt more alive and at ease with my body and my life than I do now. And um, yeah, so whole was, whole was big for me. Yeah. Like it was really, it, you know, the books are great for everybody else. And I'm so blessed that people receive them the way that they do. But they really have been my healing yes. that I've been able to share. So I... I and blown away that they were received the way that they did, that, that, that they are. And um, so Whole was born out of, yeah, just this acceptance of real nourishing bowl food. Yeah. It's just in a bowl. It's simple. It's uncomplicated. You can eat it without guilt. It's free of all nasties. I don't cook with any preservatives, anything from a bottle, mm. no refined sugars, no refined carbohydrates, um, you know, healthy carbohydrates, beautiful ingredients, and, um, yeah, just a balanced way of being, right? Yeah. So that was Whole. It changed my life, and I know that it's changed a couple of people out there's lives too, so I'm so grateful for it. And then after whole, I'd lost the 25 kilograms. Mm. Did I feel banging, hey? Mm. I was just like, yo, this is amazing. Yeah. Feeling like, you know, top of my game, everything's great. <laughs> but why am I still unhappy? Ooh, Ooh the big one. Oh. Oh. And then I was like, oh, radical. Okay, so now we're going to have to look into this and do a deeper dive. And at the mm. time, that was when I studied to be a holistic health coach. Um and that's when I started working with clients one-on-one -on -one in six-month coaching programs, which I still do today. Mm -hmm. And I realized that there was there's still this nagging in acceptance of my body and who I am deep down inside. Mm. Ba you know, it's 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 easy to feel great when you've lost the weight. Yeah, it's twice as hard to accept that you don't feel great when you've lost the weight and why. Yeah. So that was how Heal was born, where I realized, you know, you can lose the weight. Cool, but it's not going to make you happy. It's like they say, the money doesn't make you happy either, right? Mm. So what I started to see was that we actually, more than focusing on the food, need to be focusing on our emotional bodies mm. and what's going on underneath the food decision, what's driving the food de decision. Because, you know, you can have a stressed housewife who come you know has a husband and comes home and is verbally abusive to her her kids are screaming through the roof they one's failing at school the other one's hanging out with the naughty kids smoking out back she has been let go of her job because of you know covid and things are so radical and she's so stressed and 
you know, her life's a tip. Mm. You can give her all the kale in the world. It's not going to make her happy. No. And that's what I started to see. So when I started to really do a deep dive into what's going under, what's going on underneath all of this, mm-hmm. that was how Heal was born. So Heal is about this like beautiful juxtaposition of our primary food and our secondary food. Our primary food is our career, our spirituality, our relationships and exercise mm. and areas within that. That's truly what nourishes us. That's the soul food, right? Yes. And then secondary is the food that we put in our mouth. Mm. Because if your primary food's in balance, then food becomes just that, secondary. Yeah. It's just feel, right? Yeah. It's that simple. It, it's beautiful. Don't get me wrong. Food will never be simple to me because it is the love of my life. But the reality is it's petrol. Yeah. If you don't eat, you will die. If you eat, then you will have energy. If you eat good food, you'll have better energy. If you eat low-frequency food, you'll have bad energy. Like mm. it's, it's that simple, the equation. Mm-hmm. So the big work then became, let's look at the emotional stuff. And that's how the retreat space was born uh-huh. after Heal. Yes. Because, you know, in Heal, and I touch on it, I ask hard-headed questions in, in Heal at the beginning of every chapter. It really is my health Bible. Mm. Heal, was, Heal was born for your battling here's my token of love of how you're going to navigate this. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, I get into hormones, stress, uh, digestion, uh, uh, all the different aspects at the beginning of the book is quite a textbooky read at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then at the beginning of each chapter, I start to ask you like, what does a balanced breakfast look like to you? Yeah. Have you ever stopped to think? (sighs) Have you ever stopped to think what, what, you know, would happen if I took the time to meal prep for myself? Mm. What would feeling different to what I'm feeling like now feel like? Yeah. You know, so when we start to look at, started to, when I started to look at these questions and started to really do the work that under, that was underneath it all, mm. that's how Heal was born. And um, yeah, I, I, it's been incredible. It's the most rewarding journey of my life is to make these books because it's been my benefit, right? Yes. And the fact that it helps everybody out there you know, maybe just shed a little bit of light on their relationship with food, their mm. relationship with themselves, the rela- they, you know, their past traumas, their past experiences, their childhood, whatever it is, that's just the blessing. Yeah. Oh my gosh, this is so, so incredible to hear you talk about this, honestly. And I have such a similar background. And I mean, I think I needed to hear this right now. <laughs> I think we should keep it in the podcast. I think then. we should keep it in the podcast. Yeah, I need to read these books. I can't believe I haven't. Like, I've seen them online and I've seen images from them, but I'm literally going to go and get them off loot like Amazing. the moment we're done here. Yeah, I'm glad. The reality <laughs> is, is that most of us have been through it, hey? As women, yeah. we, we know the feeling of, I'm, I don't feel good enough daily. Yeah. Why? Mm-hmm. What, is, what is that about? And I think that that was the big question for me is that, Every single day is this, oh, your thighs aren't right. Your stomach's not right. Yeah. This, this needs to be a different shape. That's mm. not. And it's just like, it's like kicking somebody while they're down. And yet yeah. we're doing it to ourselves. Selves all the time. You're constantly kicking yourself while you're down and then expecting yourself to show up for your work, to mm. be an incredible creative, to, you know, eat a balanced meal. I mean. While you are it? actively like not affirming yourself every While you're single day. While you actively kicking yourself yeah. because we butcher ourselves. You know, when <laughs> yeah. I say when I say to to people, your body is the only thing that hears everything that you say. Oh my gosh, it's so true. Then you sit there and you're like, wow. It listens to you constantly. It's the only thing that listens to that voice in the head because that voice in the head's the ego, right? Yes. And it's the only thing that hears everything your ego says Mm. which is radical because we speak so unkindly to ourselves so unkindly we Mm. would never i think about it all the time how the things that i would say to myself i would never look at someone and actually say that out loud never 
not not to anybody. We're not about anybody. Not mm. even in my own head would I think the things that I think about myself yeah, sometimes. It's, it's something you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. No. And yet we easily, without thought, just plow into ourselves daily. And and I think that that's, that's the work, right? Is that I look at it and I'm like, wow, this... And that's been the blessing is that photography led me to this. Yes. Which is crazy because if you think about it, just even as a creative, you know, maybe more men will re uh, sort of connect with this is even as a creative, you're constantly judging yourself. Oh my gosh, yes. Imagine what would happen if you celebrated yourself. Mm. What would happen then? Mm. What would that look like? What would it look like if you went, yeah, you can do this. You can food style it. You can shoot it. You can mm. write a book. You can, you, you know, and when you, when you start to flip that switch and it takes practice, it's a lifetime of work and that's okay. Yeah. But I'd rather a lifetime of work of trying to celebrate myself and celebrating myself than a lifetime of kicking myself. Absolutely. Because it's tiring. And I think for me, only when you are uncomfortable enough will you shift. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There is a breaking point. There's a breaking point. And when you hit that mm. point, nobody can tell you, you know, oh, this is what you must do. Mm. Then you won't hit that breaking point. Mm. You, you won't learn that way. We just, we, as human beings, we, we like to take the path of least resistance. It's what we do. And sometimes that least resistance still means that we're going to suffer. Mm. You know, the path of least resistance is to not get up and go exercise. Obviously, I want to do that. Obviously, I want to sit on my couch every day and mm. not exercise. But the pain and the discomfort of being unfit and disconnected and unhealthy within mm. my own body, for me, became more painful mm. than the pain of getting up and going and exercising. Yeah. So it's like pick your pain, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, it's so true. So that's that's the the long deep dive into the motivation <laughs> and, and the inspiration, into the, yeah, into the books. And the best part is, I got to photograph them, I oh. got to share them. Let's let's actually go into that a little bit. So, kind of like process wise, can you like walk us through a bit of like the nitty gritty of like getting a book published, like from, you know, uh, the process that you went through, you know, like from conception of this idea, like okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna produce this book, right? To Seeing a copy of it in a bookstore, what does that process look like? Sure. So for me, again, I was very blessed. Yeah. And I don't, I always count my lucky stars, is that I could see the book in my mind's eye before I even started. Wow. And when I started shooting, it was actually something that I was taught in the beginning is that if you don't know what the end is going to look like, mm -hmm. then you can't start. Yeah. So even if you're going to do a photograph, if you're planning, regardless of what it is, a portrait, an interior shot, if you don't know what you want the end shot to look like, mm -hmm. then you can't start. So you have to start there. Is Where am I going? What is it going to be? Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the starting point, you know, when it came with Hull and with Hill, I could see the end product because I had physically experienced the whole process. So firstly, saw the end. Secondly, make the time to to be creative, mm. which for me at the beginning was the writing, right? Is to make the time. I was uh, very fortunate with Hill. My second book, I was able to go and visit my brother in Dubai. He's um, a captain with Emirates. Mm. And um, I was able to go visit him, stay at his house, and literally switch my whole life off for six weeks. I also uh, food style and shoot in Dubai. I have an agency then. So Amazing. I could combine a bit of work. And mm. also if I wasn't working, I was working. So it was, you know, six weeks of, of intense um, yeah. commitment, but that was the starting point. So it was 
I would say schedule in the time that you're going to do for the project, whatever the project is, what time are you doing what? Yeah. So that you know where you're going, right? You need the, you need the roadmap, you know, that you need to know the destination and you need to know how you're going to get there. Then once that started to pl come into place, it, for me afterwards, I'll write the recipe, I visualize how I'm going to cook it, I write the recipe, and then I've got to test it. Not everything necessarily <laughs> that is in my head works out. Yeah. So, you know, like the granola that's in here was done six times, <laughs> which is a lot of nuts to go through. Oh, a yes. bit frustrating, but it's incredible. So definitely worth it. But yeah, so I would say first making, knowing where I'm going, then making the time to do it, then testing the recipes. Um, and because... Again, you know, it's food. Every time you test a recipe, you've cooked the recipe. And if you've tested the recipe and the recipe is right, you might as well shoot it. Mm. So I was immensely blessed because Heal was also made during lockdown. And it was in the initial mm. hard lockdown, which mm. is probably the most challenging thing I've ever had to do in my life. Because I wasn't sure every time I went to go buy broccoli if I was going to die oh. because it's COVID. Yeah. And that was just a reality in the is still a reality, but initially in hard lockdown, there was a lot of fear, so much, a lot yeah. of anxiety, which is quite a difficult thing to be creative around. Like yeah. if, you ha if you're surrounded by fear and anxiety, it's not something that inspires, right? No. So in the beginning, um, I actually took on my mom as an assistant. My mom joined me in her health journey, also lost 35 kilograms. They say, don't coach your parents. Thank goodness it did work. I coached <laughs> my mom and it worked. She lost 35 kilograms. She's fit. She's healthy. She's strong. She's a person who taught me how to cook. Mm. So yeah, when I started here, I just called my mommy. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I need an assistant. I need somebody cooking because I, I can't spend copious amounts of money on food I need to if the food is right I need to shoot it that day mm. but I can't test it and make it right because I'll intu intuitively fix what's wrong with the recipe without thinking and I yeah. need to make sure that if you pick up my book when you make the recipe it works mm. so my mom stepped into the kitchen she made 120 recipes um, and unfortunately with the initial hard lockdown I lost six weeks of production so I had to do three recipes a day every day seven days a week for three months to meet the the, the deadline and my mom cooked them I didn't cook a single recipe from Hill my mom cooked them all so that I could test if what I was, had written worked so yeah. there's recipe testing then obviously once the food is ready and the book has been, uh, the manuscript's ready, the manuscript goes off to my uh, team at Penguin mm. and they edit and check and make sure the script is beautiful. And then um, in terms of the production on photography, um, yeah, the days were radical and yeah. you're chasing sunlight because you're using natural light. So that's also, and I was shooting through winter where the, the gap was even smaller. Yeah. So, yeah, in terms of the process with the photography and the styling, it's prep the food, set up, light test, I bring the props in and then I just, I can spend, I mean, I can spend an hour on each photograph at yeah. least, you know, um, an hour per image. Yeah, per yeah. image, at least, because you you know you style, you shoot, then it's this, then it's that, then you, I, I shoot to tether, so I pull it into my computer, mm. check the lighting, you know that texture's missing, this this, so I, I take my time with the photographs because I build the shot in camera as a stylist, mm. so I'll shoot on a live view and then build like I'm painting, but with food into the shot, yeah, and that's it's the part I enjoy the most. Um, because the shooting and the styling have kind of merged. They won, you know. So, yeah, that's that process. And then the retouching. And then you ship the images off to the publisher. And then the designer puts the manuscript and the the images together. And then they go to print. Then you wait for the prints to come back. You color correct, color check. 
and then you go to final print and the next time you see the book is on the shelves. Wow. Yeah, it's a process. <laughs> Start to finish, how long does that take? Um, this year I shot the book in three months. Yeah. Last time I also shot the book in three months. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm a bit of a sucker for punishment. Eh? That's intense. <laughs> it is very intense. Um, <laughs> and then my writing, I would say, takes about six months of loosely writing, but also balancing work and life. Mm. Um, and then he'll got a bit more of, like I said, it got six weeks of yes. solid hands down, three, four hours a day of writing, just mm. that, nothing else. Mm. So he'll got quite a boost in that. So, yeah, I'd say it, it takes a year to produce a book. Um but from my side, it takes me uh, six six to nine months. And then the rest is the, the, the team at Penguin. That's wild. Yeah, it's a lot. That's, that's a lot for a whole thing to be born in like such a it short space radical. of time. That is, it's impressive. Thank it's you. What it is. <laughs> <laughs> we'll continue unpacking this topic in a hot minute. But first, we need to give a big shout out to Orms without whom this wonderful podcast would not be possible. Orms is a cornerstone of the creative community in South Africa, offering industry-leading support, the latest gear, world-class display options, and unique educational opportunities for photographers, artists, and visual creatives, both locally and internationally. As always, you can find out everything you need to know by visiting ormsdirect.com co.za or any of the links under the what we do header in the show notes for this episode now let's get back to the discussion what would you say is the most enjoyable part like if you had to pick out like the most fun out of creating a book what would you say that eating the book oh did you did you do that like once it's done like you cook your way through the whole thing i have no not well i mean i'm cooking my way through the whole thing the whole thing when i'm shooting it so eating it is literally the favorite part i mean (laughs) there were days where it's like you're between chocolate milkshakes and you know chocolate covered cookies and then you having you know spanakopita and then the next day you're having a curry and the next day yeah so definitely eating my way through my books is my favorite part of making them yeah um because yeah, they're good. They're good. I mean, and they're delicious. Mouth. And I know that. My and mouth is watering. Yeah, <laughs> they, they are really delicious books. Um, so eating it. But other than that, I would say, yeah, I'd say spending the time with the photographs. Mm. I think that, you know, getting that time and, and it was a big blessing of 2020, right? Mm. We had so much taken away, but we got granted the gift of time. And it was kind of like, for me, this moment of what are you going to do with it? Yeah. Like you've got time. You can't say you don't got time because you got time. You're locked into your house. Yeah. What are you going to do with it? So for me, the with Hill, it was definitely um, the, the opportunity to, because the photography really leveled up. Although Hull got nominated in the Gourmand Cookbook Awards in Paris for Best Photography in the World. So Hull did well in terms of the photography as Incredible. well. But Hill for me was like a level up as a stylist photographer. Yeah. Where I was like, cool, how am I going to make it even better? So in Hill, just, yeah, spending that time with the photograph because you can't rush something good. Yeah. You can't. No. no matter which way you swing it, no matter what discipline you're in, if you take time to look to truly look, you have the moments to correct. And when you have the moment to correct, you elevate. Yeah. And the more you elevate, the better it gets. Yes. So it's just that combo, right? So I'd, I would say that, yeah, other than eating the books, shooting the books. Yeah. <laughs> and then in the complete reverse, what would you say would be what's kind of the most challenging part of creating these? 
the exact same thing, time. Just time. Time is the exact same thing. Time is a fleeting mistress when you have a deadline with a publishing <laughs> house like Penguin, you know. When at the beginning it was, oh, yay, I got Penguin. And then it was like, oh, shit, I got, got Penguin. penguin. <laughs> and then I was like, wow, you actually have to deliver. Yeah. You know, you signed into contracts, you it's it's you have to deliver. Mm. So, for example, um, 2020 happened. We went into hard lockdown the day I handed in the manuscript. Oh. So for... I can't remember what it was. It was like six weeks. Yeah, it was about six weeks. I had nothing to do wow. because I couldn't shoot yet because I needed certain goes from them on which recipes we were going to keep because, again, I, I like to overachieve. Mm. So I gave them 120, but there's only like 95 in 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 uh, heels. So wow. you, you kind of like, well, which ones am I going to shoot? So there was like this period of twiddling my fingers and then all of a sudden I got the, the manuscript back at the same time as I needed to shoot. Mm. And then I was like, oh, no, I don't have any time, you know. <laughs> and that's when the pressure really came on. So mm. I'd say time is, um, yeah, the number one game because you you have to deliver and, and it has to be good, um, which for creativity can sometimes be hard because as creatives we like to have that moment of, oh, when inspiration hits, then I'll go shoot. Yeah. You don't get that. Like if you're shooting three to four recipes a day, every day, seven days a week, you just got to produce and you've got to make it happen. Mm. Just got to get through it. You've got to get through it. And you've got to be creative <laughs> and make it look good because it's going to Penguin. Mm. This is going to be a tough question for, for someone who is such a, a foodie. But imagine this scenario. You can only cook one meal for the rest of your life. What are you making? Oh, that's a horrible imagination it's, situation. It's dreadful. It is dreadful. But so many people... Um, might not know this about me. Oh, we're going to let the cat out of the bag on Orm's air. Hey. Let's do it. Okay, my death row meal is duck. Duck? Uh, no, it's a shocker. My death row meal is duck. I definitely don't eat it often. I am a severe bunny hugger that eats 90% of the time either vegetarian or vegan. But yes. I do also eat meat sometimes. I believe in listening to my body. I'm a flexitarian. Mm -hmm. And my death row meal is duck. That being said, if I had to pick one meal for the rest of my life, it would probably be a form of a Buddha bowl. That, okay, I was yeah, going to say. It would probably be a Buddha bowl because it's going to, no matter what variety of vegetable I put in there, I'm going to feel good after I eat it. I'm going to have fuel after I eat it. It's going to mm. look after my health in the long run, which means I'm going to get old yeah. you know, or grow old, not get old, because that's the difference with healthy eating, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I would say a form of a Buddha bowl. And maybe on the odd occasion, if I'm allowed to, I'll cheat with some duck. There we go. Bowl. I mean, I would have said exactly the same thing. Yeah. I mean, they're so you can do so much with them. Yeah, and you just put just, it in a bowl and it makes you happy. And they look gorgeous. <laughs> Never run out of beautiful Instagram photographs and they always taste good. I believe you. I made a whole cook on a whole cookbook on bowls and yeah. it's a vibe. <laughs> it is such a vibe. And only one dish to clean up when you're done. Exactly. exactly. It's not a string of plates. Um in a complete left turn, we're going to talk about Instagram a little bit. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> After this is my job as podcast host is to, to go ahead and stalk my guests a little bit before they come onto the podcast. So I've, I've noticed you've been taking full advantage of Instagram's Reels feature, which is yeah. really cool. Um, what do you enjoy most about creating these short sort of informal like videos for Instagram? I think the reason you're seeing me enjoy Reels more is because I stopped caring yeah. a lot. I don't know, something in me shifted. I think I used to care a lot about Instagram. Mm. Initially, you know, wanting to build the following and, and seeing how I would be lying if I said Instagram didn't change my life. Mm. The fact that my Instagram, you know, sort of, I don't want to use the word blew up because I, there's people with many more followers than me, but did what it did. Yeah. 
you know, initially I was like, oh, so much pressure all of a mm. sudden. Like, and you do, you fall into that ego space of how many likes did I get? How many comments did I mm. get? You know, and then you attach your self-worth to that and then you can go down that rabbit hole. And it did happen to me in the beginning. And then later on, with the last couple of years, it's like the last like three years, maybe since I made the books, I just stopped caring because mm. Instagram's my creative outlet space. The books are my work. Yes. Don't make Instagram your work. It's not a vibe, you know, for any creative listening out there, the the word influencer is really not a, a good one. And mm -mm. in many ways, it's a curse because it it's very difficult to separate that self-worth attachment to a platform like Instagram. Yeah. It doesn't generate self-worth in a, in a good way, right? So for me, the reels, I've enjoyed them because it's been like, hey, this is just what I'm doing and I just want to show you because it's cool and I can put a tune with it and it's fun. It's so much so, fun. So honestly, I think I'm taking advantage of it because I just don't overthink it. Yeah. It's like whatever. Yeah. That's the whole point of them, I think. They're supposed to be like that. Yeah, they're quick, they're easy, they're fun. slice of life exactly. sort of thing. It's, I love what you mentioned about from a creative perspective, not using Instagram as your job yeah. because it's very similar. I was having this thought earlier on when you were talking about the idea of pigeonholing yourself and then attaching like worth to our work in terms of like a, a monetary sense. Often what I see for creatives who aren't like maybe working, using their creativity for like an income, maybe they're posting things on Instagram or something and the exchange that they're looking for is that social validation in mm. a way with the comments and the likes and things. And then if the mm. the work doesn't get noticed in that context, doesn't get a certain number of likes, certain number of comments, saves, whatever, then everyone is like freaking out. And they're like, my work means nothing. Exactly. Because my self-worth, I mean nothing. nothing. That's how we internalize it, right? Like if we're mm. not getting 5,000 likes on a photo, then I must be worth nothing or, you yeah. know, like it's radical. And I think that, I think that it's very, very important to keep a level head when it comes to any social media platform because mm. it is just social media. And the way the engine is designed is to keep you on there, it's to keep people on there, and it's to keep feeding you whatever they think you need to see. Mm. And that's the reality with the platform. So if the platform decides that they don't think you need to see about health, well-being, and connectivity that I might be sharing on my platform, yeah. you're never going to see it. And that's just what it is because they've decided that. Mm. So you've, you're fighting a algorithm, a machine, a, a man, whoever it is that decided this thing. And it's so pointless. Yeah. For what? Mm. Who cares if I get 50 likes on a photo? Who cares if I get 500 likes on a photo? Like, whoopee. Yeah. It's just a photo. Mm. And it's a photo that either I wanted to share or a photo that, you know, I've always had the approach of I want my Instagram to add value. Yes. Anything anything that I do, be it my books, be it my social mm. media, be it an interview, like I wanted to add value. I want people to walk away going, you know what? I learned something. Yeah. I grew. I had some self-awareness. I could apply it to my photography, my emotional state of being with food, whatever mm. it is. And I think that social, like social media doesn't foster connection. It doesn't foster self-worth. It doesn't foster any of these positive things in yes. life. So yeah, when it, when it comes to a Attaching to it for work, it's a dangerous place to be at. You know, I, I, I think that you need to ask yourself when Facebook's old, right? Yes. Our parents are on Facebook. Our yep. grandparents are on Facebook. <laughs> Facebook's old. She's yeah. been around for a while. Um, when 2000, I came out of matric 2006 
And I remember the first year after that being like, oh, do I have to get rid of my MySpace now? I've oh. just got in MySpace and put an emo photo <laughs> up. Like, you know, and then being like, oh, Facebook's the new thing. And then, yeah. it, you know, it's the next and the next. Is that when it becomes old and when and if it doesn't exist, what do you have to stand on? Mm. Mm. If we took, if the world all of a sudden decided no more social media, what would you have? Yeah. What would you leave behind? Because you can't leave behind your 100,000 followers and your 5,000 likes on a photo. Mm. It's nothing. It's just something that's in the digital sphere. Yeah. And you've put all your like self-worth and all your eggs into that one basket of being an influencer or, you mm. know, whatever. It just For me, it doesn't equate. For me, my work is more in the, if I can shift somebody's experience on their mm. emotional landscape with themselves um, at a retreat, for me, that holds more value than the 500 likes or the two, 50 likes or the 10 likes that come attached to Instagram, yes. you know? So yeah, it's a, it's a very, I have a very interesting relationship with it. In the beginning, I got hooked mm. into it mm. because I could see how it shifted things for me as a creative, you know, yeah. being able to, and that's why I think it, it grew so quickly because I can take a semi-decent photo and people like that. And then it grew. And then I was like, wow, okay, the more I do this, the more I'll get validated as a creative. Yes. You know, you, yes. I got into that and I, and I can own that. But then all of a sudden, yeah, I think just with the books and just seeing things unfold the way that I did, I was just like, this platform actually makes me feel, you know, it can make me, not all the time, but can make me feel insecure or lesser or mm. uncomfortable with my creativity or that it's not validated by by who? Some person that's double tapping or spending three seconds on a photo. I mean, let's face yeah. it, everybody deep scrolls. You're spending three seconds not even reading the caption. Yeah. Like, you know, to place... To, to, to place your happiness in the hands of the art just doesn't make sense. And, and mm. I, I reached that realization, thankfully, very early on. My partner is also a very grounded person that has no social media. So there's that strong contrast, right, of, yes. of, of that grounding to mm. not be so caught up in the machine. It's so important for those of us who have to be on it uh, for like work yeah. in some capacity. I mean, Coming off this a bit more, actually, it was something I wanted to ask you about. So I've definitely, from from following you on Instagram and like kind of seeing how you engage in that space, you're definitely one of those creators who's keeping everything really real, extremely natural on the platform. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Um, what would you say, in your opinion, is the key to maintaining authenticity as a creator on the internet? It's a big question. Stop looking at what everybody else is doing. Stop watching everybody else's bouncing ball and watch your own. Mm -hmm. um, I once listened to an Oprah podcast. Was it a podcast? Might have been a show. I don't know. Oprah for president, in my opinion. But mm. she said in the, it was one of her master classes, actually. Wow. And she said, if you want to be great at something, stop watching what everybody else is doing. Yeah. And that like resonates. It's so true for me. And it's something that I've kept in my creative toolkit my whole career is that I don't care what everybody else is doing. I don't mm. care what the next fitfluencer or, you know, trainer or a recipe developer or other cordon bleu plant-based chef or rich, like, I don't care what you're doing. Like with, mm. and I mean it with the utmost love in my heart, like beautiful that you're doing that. Like amazing. Go, go for gold. I will cheer you, cheer you on. Mm. I just don't need to be watching it. I need to be watching my craft. And that's all I care about is what am I producing? Because if I am not producing what sets my soul on fire and what I believe to be brilliant, then then what are you doing anyways? And, you know, looking at somebody else is either 
like it, it, it's it's comparison's the death of joy, right? Yeah. So if you're constantly looking at everybody else, you're constantly comparing yourself, and if you're constantly comparing yourself, you'll never be happy. Yeah. So I don't. Yeah. So in, when it comes to that, I don't like to see. Like a lot of people would be like, "What? You don't follow them?" I'm, I'm mm. like, "God, if I could follow no people, I probably would, except food pictures, yeah. you know, <laughs> or like things that really set my soul on fire." Because mm. it, you do, you automatically fall into that comparison. So first tip would be to um, not compare yourself. And the second one would be that the filter, the preset killed the creativity. Oh. Mm. oh. Mm-hmm. I cannot for a completely beige, monotoned Instagram. Yeah, please no. I'm just like, it is so done. It's content that we saw 10 years ago. Can everybody please move on? Because yeah. how old's Instagram now? Like, I mean, I've had it for 20... seven years. Mm. So it's at least seven years old. Yeah. Because I wasn't I like the first person. I want to say it came out in 2010. Someone can fact check me on that. Yeah. But yeah. Exactly. So it's it's been a hot minute. Mm. And why are we still creating content the way that we did 10 years ago? Like yeah. where's your creativity at? And I think that the problem is, is that you've got these people with like 200,000 followers or 500,000 followers or whatever it is. And the whole Instagram looks the same. And I'm just like, yo, that's so depressing to me as a creative. I'm just like, that is so unstimulating. I mean, yeah. I get it a bit of an aesthetic, a bit of a look, a bit of a feel. A bit of a curation. Yeah, a bit of a curation, you know, put your put your back into it because people will only remember your bad photograph. Like that's how I was trained, right? So in mm. your portfolio, wherever it is, you won't find bad imagery because people will remember your one bad shot rather than your 10 yeah. great ones. But I think that the preset killed the creativity mm. where everybody feels it's got to all look the same. It doesn't have to look the same. No. Like I am not the person I was a year ago. Mm. Like why would I want my creativity to be? Yeah. You know, and I look at some of the people that are in the game and have been for a long time and yeah, they might have triple the following and triple the engagement, but you're still producing the same creative stuff that you did 10 years ago. Wow. That must be stifling. Yeah. Like I actually, it, it breaks my heart mm. because I'm just like, that, that sucks. That yeah. must suck because I, I would cry if somebody said to me, you have to shoot the same way every day, all the time mm. in order to feel validated and liked. I, I would, it's like. Suffocating. It's suffocating. It's suffocating. Mm. So for me, yeah, like just do you, boo. That's all you can do. Like yeah. just, if you, if it, if it makes you happy, if it's a message you want to share, if it's going to add value to somebody's life, share it on social media. And if one person sees it yes just one and it makes a difference to them then for me my job is done yeah like if i can share my message and one person listens to this podcast and goes i've never thought about the fact that every single day i beat myself and kick myself down and don't celebrate myself and that is truly deeply painful and tomorrow i'm going to wake up and maybe just write down three things that i'm grateful for Mm -hmm. in order to pull myself out of this dark space Mm -hmm. if i have one person doing that i'm happy I'm happy. It doesn't matter about the yeah. likes and the following. and It's all noise, right? Yeah. And that, that is a genuine impact as versus just noise. Yeah. yeah. It's just noise. Because if the platform died tomorrow, it's, what would you have? It's all for nothing. Yeah. It's all for nothing. <laughs> it's all, all an illusion. <laughs> it's all an illusion anyways. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is such a, such a hilarious dichotomy for someone whose like, job revolves around creating content for social media. And I'm like, it's all fake. My job is all entirely and, made up. You and me both, girl. You and me both. <laughs> I have people that bump into me because I don't always share content live when I'm actually experiencing it. Mm. And I'll get people that are like, oh, you're looking like it's, you know, living the life. And I'm like, guys, you've got to remember. Mm. You've got to remember Instagram versus reality. Most mm. days I'm stressed. I'm tired. I'm running around. I'm you know, multifaceted career. I've got a plan for a retreat. I've got an interview. I've got this, I've got that. Like the little snippet that you see of me and perhaps an amazing place and don't 
listen, I can't negate the fact that it has blessed me with the most incredible experiences, as has mm. my crea- my creativity in general. You know, with my photography, I've been to some of the best resorts and lodges, game lodges in the world, for example. So mm. I count those blessings. But the reality is, is that's a very thin, 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 thin little snare yeah. of my whole life. Yeah. Not reality. It's so true. We say it all the time, but people need to hear it more. Yeah. Um, to wrap this up, we're we're going like again. If we went left turn, we're going right turn now. That's okay. We're all over the right. highway. We're all over we're the just highway. swerving wildly. Um, obviously, we're Orms. We have to ask you about your camera gear. Let's do it. Let's do it. What are you shooting on at the moment? Give us a lineup: bodies, lenses, just all the things. iPhone. Jokes, 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 jokes. Could you imagine? Can you imagine which iPhone? Which iPhone? (laughs) So I have my workhorse 5D Mark III. Mm. Uh, I'm on Canon. I used to be on Nikon. And then I just realized the way it sat in my hand, because it's that constant thing, right? Are we Canon? Are we Nikon? Are we we Sony? Or like like whatever. Mm. Um, I like the ergonomics of how the camera sat in my hand. Like that, yeah, it works for me in my hand. So I sold my Nikon gear, moved over to Canon. I have a 5D Mark III. She's my workhorse. I've built my entire career on it. Um, And uh, 2470 2.8. Oh. Those, that combo for me is it's if I have that unbeatable. I can shoot it's unbeatable in, in my opinion then I've got a 50mm macro I've got an 85mm fixed you know because you get that prime that crisp mm. sharpness that you just and that depth that you're not going to get on a on a zoom lens um, and that's it yeah that is it and a tripod and you know I often get asked I've had people come onto set with me I am not a gearhead yeah I'm not. I've carried it. I did my time. Mm. I did my time. I carried Generate. I mean, I've assisted, and to me, they are incredible photographers, guys like Jesse Lee Alford and mm. uh, Ulrich Knobloch. And like, I've assisted the most incredible people, and they are so good with gear. And they just carry, like, it's C stands, it's lights, it's cameras, Ugh. it's lenses. It's like in- incredible. I don't want to carry it. Oh, no. I don't want to carry it. It's time. I'm done. So if it can fit in a backpack, if I can, you know, be quick and nimble like an elf, I'm happy. So I have my mm. 5D Mark III, those three lenses and my tripod and a scrim. Done. Yeah. And that's how I shot my whole book as well. Well, both books. I was going to ask you what your dream kit is, but I imagine it's exactly what you've well, got. Listen, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't fight at the moment to move over to mirrorless. I'm Ooh. tired of a heavy camera now. Now Ooh. I want a light, quick, easy camera. You, Ooh, know? you must get on that R5 so, life. Yeah, that R5 life is, oh, it's there. It's, it's right there. It's, yeah, that is a, a thing a girl dreams of. Um, but yeah, until the, the time is right to pull the trigger, because I don't want to sell my 5D. Mm. You see, that's the trick here, is that if I could, if I had to sell the gear to upgrade, yeah, I could do that. Mm. But the 5D is just, it's so great, you know, unless yeah. it went to, uh, I went to the Mark IV, mm. uh, but then I'm not going to get the mirrorless unless I'm really making bank. I mean, mm. that's the ideal situation is mm. have, you know, have all the of them. Yeah, just and have maybe even a third want. smaller camera, like, you know, the, how many cameras is too many? I don't know if that's, I don't think there's the limit many. doesn't exist. There is no limit. Can we mean girl it? Yeah. <laughs> The limit doesn't exist. Just so, yeah, I think that um, my 5D will always have a special place in my heart because mm. it's built my career. I've done everything with it. Yeah, I've got a similar place in my heart for like a good Canon 80D because mm. that's what I started on and that's what I did all my initial video work on. I still love that camera. Exactly. I would not say no to an R5. Canon, if you're listening, yes. please. Exactly. If the, angel, if the camera angels are out there, this is the wish. Yeah, we're putting this out there. I just want to manifest a R5 right now for myself. Thank you. (laughs) 
um, okay. And then, then lastly, to wrap up, um, if you had to recommend a sort of like a relatively minimalist, similar to yourself, kind of setup for newbie food photographers, what collection of gear would you put together to recommend to somebody starting out? So again, you know, buying the best quality camera that you can afford is definitely the first port of call. Um, mm. But the money isn't in the body, the money's in the lens. 100%. So investing into the best lens that you can afford next to the great camera body is very important. So, you know, again, my 2470 has been golden. She's a 2.8, so it's fast and um, I can take it into any situation and know it's going to deliver. Mm. Um, you know, it's got a bit of a wide angle if it's a landscape or whatever. So a 2470 or equivalent is definitely a great starting point. And then a good camera body. Um, regardless of the brand or the make as uh, the, the starting points. And then in terms of tripods, uh, I'm trying to remember, I've got the Manfrotto, the one with the arm that extends, it pulls out mm. and then it flops over. I've got the aluminium or alloy one or whatever it's called because it's light. Yes. That's that's my extent of my, my gear knowledge. I got the light one because I don't want to carry heavy things. I've done uh, my time. We've, we've been over this. So. No, 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 no. <laughs> so I've got the tripod with the extension arm, uh, the camera, and then, um, yeah, that's the, that's a good And a versatile lens. And a versatile is... lens. Like, that's it. You need a camera, a lens, a tripod finished. And you don't even need a tripod in the beginning, but I do recommend it. Yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely a must if you're going to do food photography. You know, the rest of it may be not, not such a stress, but... Mm. For but food the, photography, you need it. But for food, you definitely need it. Melissa, that is all the questions I have for you. Yay. Yeah. Thank you so much for today. It's been such a treat to be able to really talk a lot more about my photography that's mm. combined with the books. Mm. Everybody asks me a lot of other questions. I don't often get space for my first love, which is... The photos. The photos, you yeah. Know? Well, it's been it's been wonderful to hear you talk about this. I, I could talk to you for like another two hours, but I feel like we've both got things to do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. We'll continue unpacking this topic in a hot minute. But first, we need to give a big shout out to Orms, without whom this wonderful podcast would not be possible. Orms is a cornerstone of the creative community in South Africa, offering industry-leading support, the latest gear, world-class display options, and unique educational opportunities for photographers, artists, and visual creatives, both locally and internationally. As always, you can find out everything you need to know by visiting ormsdirect.co.za or any of the links under the What We Do header in the show notes for this episode. Now let's get back to the discussion.